0: to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with biological anthropologist Peter Unger. Dr. Unger serves as the distinguished professor of anthropology and the director of environmental dynamics in the Ph.D. program at the University of Arkansas. He received his PhD in Anthropological Sciences from Stony Brook University and taught gross anatomy in the medical schools of Johns Hopkins University and Duke University before joining the University of Arkansas faculty back in the mid-90s. He is an honorary research fellow of the Center of Exploration of the Deep Human Journey at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa and has served as a visiting faculty in multiple institutions around the world, including in Australia, Finland, and in China. What makes Dr. Unger fascinating is his research is primarily focused on looking at the diets and the environments related to fossil teeth from hundreds and thousands of years ago. He has spent thousands of hours observing wild apes and other primates in the forests of Latin America and Indonesia, Study the fossils from tyrannosauroids and Neanderthals. He developed new techniques for using surface analysis technologies to tease information about the ecology and evolution from a tooth shape and patterns of use and wear. He's also conducted research on the oral health of the Hadza tribe in Tanzania, the last remaining hunter-gatherers on the planet in Africa. His current work focuses on using tools developed for analyzing fossil teeth to study the impacts of climate change on the ecology of Arctic mammals and also to document monitor, monitor dental health pathologies in the clinical setting. For me, Dr. Unger begins a series of podcasts looking at the tooth and the oral cavity in specific when it, as it relates to human health. Why have we developed teeth the way we've developed them? Where did it all start? Where did it shift? What does it say about what we should be eating as a human species? What does it say about our ancestral lineage of The way our teeth functioned, why are they not functioning as well now? Why are we seeing so many children struggling with wisdom teeth coming in, with needing braces, with cavities or what we call dental caries, with periodontal disease? And then how does that all play out over time, leading to increased systemic disease for humans? We're going to get into that with the podcast with Dr. Doug Thompson. So there's a lot to be learned, again, looking upstream anthropologically as to the why. Something existed in Human species for any function, whether it's discussing it with Dr. E.A. Quinn, breastfeeding, whether it is looking at the urine case mutation with Dr. Johnson. We want to keep going deep into these spaces to look to see where the upstream knowledge was and where we might be going in the wrong direction now in our modern society. And Dr. Unger, as with many of the other guests to date, is the expert in this space and he has a fund of knowledge to share with us. So let's get started discussing the anthropologic history of the tooth and how does it relate to our species today with Dr. Unger. Well, hello and good day, Dr. Unger. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. So welcome from Arkansas.
1: Yep. Thank you for having me, Chris.
0: All right. Such a pleasure. I'm so looking forward to having this conversation ever since the day I read that Scientific American paper three years ago. Your work is excellent, and I'm really looking forward to sharing with the, the audience everything there is to know about the anthropologic history of our teeth and, and, and humans and diets related to it. So I'm going to start by reading a part of your Scientific American paper in 2020, where you stated, Dental caries is the most common and pervasive chronic disease in the world. It afflicts more than nine in 10 Americans and billions of people across the globe. Yet over the past 30 years, I've studied hundreds of thousands of teeth of fossil species and living animals and seen hardly any tooth decay. Based on what you've learned as a dental anthropologist, why are humans struggling with dental disease, number one? And I really specifically want the listeners to hear your wonderful description of the anatomy of the elegant human tooth. So take it away.
1: Sure. Um, as I alluded to in that quote, humans certainly uh, are prone to dental disease more than other mammals and, in fact, other vertebrates, the tooth-bearing animals. Uh, and I think it's uh it has largely to do with our, our diets. This hasn't always been the case before the advent of agriculture and particularly before industrialization and the widespread availability of processed carbohydrates, sugar, uh, sugars, and so forth. Um, there was, as you said, hardly any uh, caries. The The disease just didn't exist very commonly uh, among humans. And I think that's because that there's this sort of mismatch between our oral environment and the environments in which our teeth evolve. So in other words, when you put lots of sugar and, refined processed carbohydrates into your mouth, what you're basically doing is you're stimulating the, uh, the bacteria, the acidogenic bacteria, those that cause the acids that decay your teeth to, to grow and multiply at the expense of the uh, acidophobic bacteria, those that the, the beneficial bacteria that keep the balance, that keep the acid producing bacteria in check. And when you throw off that balance between the acid producing bacteria and those that don't like the acid, uh, then you get this sort of synergistic or building effect that changes the acidity of your oral environment and leads your teeth to decay.
0: Right. And so you think about that, that simple discussion of the oral microbiome being a dysbiotic microbiome, which now we're learning in medicine in pediatrics especially that the dysbiosis is not just in the mouth it's every single organ in the body the lung the 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 gut and it is to your point i think very clearly it's not a evolutionary problem so much as it's a mismatch of our lifestyle choices as a decision making process that then leads to the dysbiosis and i your your ted talk was elegant in in the fact that you discussed that humans are Incredibly resilient in our ability to eat diverse species of food and have diverse exposures to climates and everything else that exists in the world. So, before we head down that path, let's really describe what the anatomy of the tooth is, because I think the tooth is just, it, to your point, is a phenomenal structure and and so strong for what it can do. So let's let's do that deep dive because I think this is this is a great way to start where the rest of this conversation is going to go.
1: Yes, of course. Your teeth are made up of several different types of tissue. And these tissues have different material properties. And it's the combination of the material properties that give their, your teeth their strength, their resilience. And in fact, this combination is so unique and so strong that engineers have been trying to replicate it to produce all kinds of things that uh, that, that can help us today. Things like body armor for the military even. Um, So how did nature come up with this uh, really intricate and complex structure? And what is this intricate and complex structure that makes up our teeth? So the tooth itself is, is made up of several different tissue types. The two principal tissue types are something called dentin and something called enamel. Now, dentin is the yellow part that the root of your tooth is made up of, sometimes as you get older and your teeth begin to yellow, you can sort of see it through the enamel. That's uh, a highly sort of flexible and resilient tissue that's made up of about 70% mineral, rock basically, and about 30%, 40% water and proteins. And, And these proteins are very flexible. Flexibility is important for strength the cap that's on the outside of that, the white part of your tooth is called enamel. And that's something like 95% mineral. It's the hardest part of your body. And it's the combination of this really hard tissue and this really tough, resilient tissue that gives the tooth its
0: strength. Yeah, and so- Not sure if that
1: answered your question.
0: It does. And I think I want to go a little deeper on that part because when you initially- um, when I saw you describe it in the in the in the article and also in the video, go a little bit farther with the ameloblasts and the oh, okay. de- od- odontoblasts because I think that's sort of critical to the process of why the enamel is not replaceable, which I think is a is a important part of the history of of our teeth.
1: Absolutely, sure. So essentially, what happens is the tooth forms embryonically. When the tooth forms, uh, there's this sort of interface between the air above and the inside of the tooth below. And that's called the enamel dentin junction. Pushing outward are cells called ameloblasts that secrete enamel. In other words, you can think of these cells as giant tubes of toothpaste uh, that sort of are bunched together and squeezed and pulled outward. The tube itself is the cell. And since that moves outward, eventually when you hit the ultimate surface of the tooth, those are lost. Those just sort of slough off, right? Uh, The dentin inside is secreted from something called an odontoblast, and that pushes in towards the middle or root of the tooth, okay, the the pulp chamber. Those odontoblasts are conserved and preserved and stay on forever, so you can continually produce dentin, but not enamel. So that way, if you bore a hole in your tooth uh, because of the caries process, if you if you get a cavity or if you crack your tooth, you can't fix it because the ameloblasts that are used to produce the enamel, those uh, that material is 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 lost. Those cells are gone. Um, the other interesting thing about this is that these ameloblasts produce these long basically what are called prisms or rods of enamel. You can think of them as strands of spaghetti, right? And, um, or pencils. (laughs) And when you align a whole bunch of pencils together in the same orientation, they're much stronger than when you just take one pencil and you you take a bunch of pencils or or, or a whole bunch of spaghetti and try and break it. Uh, It's much harder to do that than if you're only doing one. And not only that, but the way that these enamel rods are aligned or lined up, they're lined up sort of from the outside of the tooth to the inside of the tooth, from the surface to the inside of the tooth. So it's as if you're pushing down the long way, the long axis on your pencil or your spaghetti strand, rather than having those strands sort of laying out Sort of horizontally. So it's a combination of the way that these strands are interwoven and laid together and the number of strands that give the enamel its incredible strength. This is something that's unique to the mammals because we have to chew, and chewing means that we have to produce a great deal uh, of force and that the teeth have to resist those forces so that they themselves don't break in the process of chewing. You know, I mean, think about it a tooth is amazing because you have to break without being broken you right. got to break food without the tooth being broken you have to do it up to millions of times over the course of your lifetime and you've got to make that tooth from the same raw materials as the foods that you're breaking so it's an incredible feat of engineering
0: yeah i found i find i found Find all of that super fascinating just because of exactly as you stated. You're actually taking something that you're chewing and you're making it harder somehow in order to mm-hmm. not end up breaking yourself in the process of breaking the thing you're breaking. I just, it's it is quite incredible. And so let's go back to a little bit more of the anthropology side of this. So you've looked at teeth over thousands and thousands of years. And somewhere along the way, you had a word for the tooth called a tribosphenic tooth. Mm-hmm. So this sort of this ancestral beginning of the the different variations of teeth that turn into the Homo sapien tooth, or into different mammals that have the crushers. Let's go a little bit there because I think that sort of lays the framework again for when we start to think about diets in humans. Why certain food types for us are are, are more beneficial than others?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, there's this uh, theory that basically goes that, and and in fact, there's an incredible amount of support for it in the fossil record that. Our teeth began as simple cones. Think of a fish tooth or a or a frog tooth or something like that. Uh, and that over time we added little cones in front and behind the initial cone. Then those sort of pushed out of line so that you still had three cones, but instead of one in front of the other, they form sort of a triangle. You add a shelf behind the triangle. And I know it's very difficult to sort of visualize this, but that's basically this sort of tribosphénic molar soap, as it's called, is basically uh, a series of crests that are connecting three different cones or cusps and then a basin behind them. And these crests and basin together allow for shearing or slicing the crests and crushing or grinding the basin. so it's an incredibly versatile tooth type that'll allow an animal to eat just about anything it wants. It can crush, it can slice. Hard foods are crushed, tough foods are sliced, uh, and then that was sort of the key core to the to the early mammals. And then from there, we get the evolution and specialization of all the different types of mammals that there are today. So, for example, humans have reduced the cusps, the the sorry the crests connecting the cusps and blunted out the cusps themselves and added cusps to make a big flat chewing basin. Dogs and cats have lost the basin and focused more on the crests. And so teeth are really cool from an evolutionary perspective insofar as you can trace through the fossil record how all of the mammals today, from dolphins, to people, to dogs and cats, to bears, to you name it, to, to horses and cows, how all of their teeth evolved from a common type. And from this common type of a generalist tooth into the specialists that we see today, it's, it's, it basically is an amazing demonstration of evolution.
0: Yeah, and I think of it from the perspective of of humans as we started to dominate the planet from our ability to maximize our caloric intake. To, teeth became super powerful in this process. So, when I spoke with Brianna Pobiner about meat, you know, so the 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 consumption of meat for humans really started to help us evolve uh, our 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 brains, our bodies, because we were able to get more calories in a in a period of time by consuming animal products at that time and then when i looked at the diversity of diets around the world and i think you've spoken to this as well we have people living in all kinds of different climates and all kinds of different environments where the food type in that area may be drastically different from the food type in another. so let's take eskimos to um hadza uh um, individuals in Africa. And this is completely diverse food, yet they're both subsisting and, and doing quite well with that. And so I think to me, when I look at your work, I think that's sort of the the beauty of the human evolution is that we are so versatile in our ability to take food from any climate or region because of this tooth structure. Would that be a fair statement to say?
1: Well, I would say that the tooth structure in part allows us to take a broad spectrum of foods. You can't discount the fact that we have other tools that allow us to process foods that other animals don't have. We have tools, right? We've got stone tools. We've got metal tools. We've got fire. Fire detoxifies. Fire um, busts cell walls that allow us to access nutrients that, that we wouldn't otherwise have access to. So I think that teeth are just one of the tools that we have uh, and to, to get sort of more general than teeth alone, because, I mean, teeth, teeth are cool in and of themselves, but they're only really part of the story. Uh, essentially, as our environments over the last seven million years became increasingly um, unpredictable because the the, the oscillation, the 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 change between warm and wet and cool and dry conditions just has become, the the swing has become more and more dramatic over the past seven million years. The idea is that we have evolved to be able to take a very broad spectrum of foods because nature has pretty much changed out the foods available um, to, to us. And I think that our food choice is driven largely by what's available to us. Of course, we have certain foods we would prefer to eat if they're available, but um, you've got to eat what's there. And our teeth in combination with these tools, these other tools uh, have, have have really allowed us to take over the planet, not just in Africa where conditions change a great deal over time, uh, but all over the world.
0: Right. Right. And I think uh, again, speaking to the anthropologic history of, of different types. E.A. Quinn, who's a breastfeeding specialist that I would spoken with, really went to that same discussion point around the different forms of foods that a person had access to, in this case, a maternal diet. And then the outcome of the breast milk was re- similar in all the different diverse environments. Again, speaking to the resiliency and the redundancy of the system being able to produce the best product, no matter what the intake pieces, I think that again, speaks to your point. So if we start to go backwards a little bit again and say, okay, the tooth is a part of the structure in the mouth, right? So you have 32 teeth as an adult, but you have a jaw. When did things start to go sideways from the perspective of overcrowding of our jaws, wisdom teeth coming in sideways. All these things that I know you have spoken to mm-hmm. ancestrally was not a big problem.
1: Absolutely. And it's not just ancestrally. I I have spent a great deal of time uh, in the bush with a, with the Hadza, which are the last remaining hunter-gatherers in Africa. And they don't have dental crowding like we do. I'm sure your listeners, by and large, have had issues with impacted wisdom teeth. They've had issues with dental crowding on their lower teeth. The the lower incisors are pushed together. The upper incisors jut out in front of the lower incisors, which dentists today consider normal, uh, this so-called scissors bite, uh, but it's not. (laughs) If you look at more traditional hunter-gatherers, for example, the upper and lower teeth come together edge to edge. Uh, And... These issues, the issues with the crowding of the front teeth, the uppers jutting out over the lowers, and the back teeth not even having enough room to erupt because the jaw's not big enough, these are new. These are largely issues that that relate to industrialization and the consumption of soft, highly processed foods. If you look even today at hunter-gatherers, if you look at traditional agricultural societies, where people don't eat so much uh, soft processed foods. If you look at uh, societies where people are not mushing up their babies' foods, they don't have dental crowding because their jaws are longer. Their jaws are the right length for their teeth. Our teeth don't change, but our jaws change. And our jaws change because as we grow and develop, the bone in our jaw grows and develops. The amount of bone that is produced by the cells that produce that bone, the osteoblasts, depends on the uh, stress environment that those bone-producing cells are in. Higher stress environment tells the body, "Uh uh-oh, we better secrete more bone to strengthen that jaw. And so if you don't exercise your jaw as a little kid, you're not producing the stress environment necessary to grow your jaw to its optimal length. Another way of thinking about this, uh, another example of this sort of phenomenon is that some people reach their ultimate height potential and others say people who don't get the necessary nutrients during growth and development, people who are sick during growth and development don't reach their ultimate height potential, just the same. And this is why people two, three, 400 years ago had Uh, had doors into their houses that were so much lower than ours today because they were shorter. They didn't reach their ultimate potential. Like that, we are today not reaching our ultimate potential in jaw length because we feed our babies mush. And as a result, our teeth become crowded in the front. They become crowded in the back. And it creates all kinds of problems, even breathing problems, in fact. And um, sleep dentists oftentimes... Equate um, sleep apnea with a jaw that is not long enough, because your tongue attaches to the front inside front of your jaw, and if your jaw is not long enough, there's not enough space behind your tongue when you're lying back uh, and sleeping um, for for air to move in and out while you're while you're asleep. Your 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 tongue basically falls into your into your air chamber, and so. There are all kinds of negative ramifications to to this fact.
0: All right. I want to touch on two things because you just before I segue into the food of the uh, the hunter gatherer individuals for babies. That is super interesting about the mouth breathing or the uh, the jaw being too far back and the sleep apnea and all the structures that are disrupting the normal breathing pattern in children and adults. Mm-hmm. That would then mess up with saliva. And saliva, in theory, because you're going to dry out your mouth while you're sleeping because you're not closed, so the salivary event isn't taking place normally, would that, I would assume, have an effect on increasing risk of of gingivitis and dental decay because the saliva has beneficial effects as it's being released constantly?
1: Absolutely. Um, Rates of of caries are also related to... to to the amount of saliva you produce. So if you're not producing enough saliva, you're wearing your teeth down um, through normal tooth use, through normal chewing, you're making your teeth more susceptible to caries uh, because saliva actually buffers against the acids that produce cavities.
0: Right. Right, I think that that's a critical piece for the listeners to hear. So, if you have a child or you yourself is mouth breathing consistently, and you know what that's like, is you'll wake up with a a mouth that feels dry and and parched consistently, then that's something that needs to be addressed. So, let's go to. I often, one...
1: I could, I can I could tell you, I, I I often tell this story about my own daughters and my wife and. It was so frustrating because my wife had always cut, whenever our, our children had meat, she'd always cut the meat up into these tiny little pieces, right? And I kept saying, let them chew, let them chew. They're going to need orthodontia when they grow up. And she, you know, I lost the argument because she basically said, you know what? I'd rather have them have braces than choke right. on food. And of course, you're not going to win that argument. And, right. and you don't want your kids to choke. So I'm not advocating to your listeners that they feed you know rocks to their kids. Mm-hmm um but nevertheless in the end don't tell anybody <laughs> but i got her back if you, you look at that scientific american paper yep there is a uh an image of a there's a there's a radiograph there's a, an x-ray of a jaw in there yeah with with impacted molars yep that's my daughter's jaw ah
0: uh, yeah I, I you know what <laughs> doesn't it say is... on the paper Yep. Well, we're not going to say anything. But, you know, to your point, I think that's super fascinating because when we think about what humans ate for so long and how they ate it, we really have become this overprotected society in so many different ways. Because I agree with you. We don't want kids to choke, but why would they choke if they're being watched appropriately during that period of time when they're eating, right? I think the fundamentals of choking come down to a child eating in a situation where there's not protection. In the situation, because if a child does start gagging, you're right there to help them change gravity, get involved. So there has to be a middle point here, right? Mm-hmm. And and what do we know about the hunter gatherer diet for children historically? About do we know anything about size of of food particles given to the child? How much was it cut? I know you st- sat, stayed with the Hadza. Do you know much about that for the kids?
1: Well. um, Hadza of kids oftentimes they'll make stews mm-hmm. for their children. Um, and there'll be some chewing involved for sure. Uh, they will grind up um the nuts of baobab fruits and and feed those to the kids as paste. So they do they do some food processing for sure. But, you know, when those kids are young, they are, and, and when I say young, I, I mean from sort of when they start weaning their kids off the breast and start feeding them solid foods, they'll eat, you know, bits of meat, they'll eat uh tubers. They'll mm-hmm. they'll ch- they'll chew and chew and chew.
0: And so we're and thinking
1: continue to do so.
0: And we're thinking toddler age, 12 months to 24 months, would you say that's about the right time when they're starting to do a lot of that chewing? I couldn't
1: say for sure. I haven't okay. specifically studied the ages at which these things start, but that sounds certainly sounds plausible.
0: Yeah, I mean that would be to me as a pediatrician, that would make the most sense to me as a time course for when that would, you know, be it would seem to be appropriate. Sort of like when we talk talk to parents about when their first foods go in, if they're pushing their tongue out, it's a clear sign mm-hmm. they're not ready. But when they pull mm-hmm. the food in with the tongue, it's a clear sign they're ready. And so I think a lot of that comes down to when do you start getting teeth? I mean, we have our age, our range of children developing teeth. The youngest I've seen is three months and three weeks. The oldest is first tooth so was 15 months. So that range wow. is incredibly varied. So it may come down to, when these developmental marks are hit in time, when somebody would go down a path to do more chewing versus not chewing. But I think to your bigger point, your broader point, it's the context of the whole experience. So from when they start chewing, everything that they're doing from that point on would be more geared towards heavier chewing in a non-processed or minimally processed diet, as opposed to what we currently live in modern society, which is right out of the gate. It's a minimally chewed, highly processed diet and especially from the toddler years where they're doing puffs and even now veggie puffs and these things that are quote unquote healthy. It's really not. I mean the metabolic side we're not even going to get into in this talk, but it's it's just basically straight sugar, which then leads to all the metabolic effects. So none of this is 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 the route we want to go. So would you would you then piggyback on that to state that what you're learning or teaching has you've obtained over time is that the best answer for modern humans who have children is to as soon as they can get as much chewing into the system as possible
1: sure if it's done in a responsible way that doesn't promote joking
0: <laughs> yes understood totally i agreed entirely i don't but, want your
1: listeners to go you know feeding rocks to their kids or 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 giving their toddlers um you know rare steak <laughs> I'm, well I'm
0: and, and 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 I, and I take that point. I think that's well spoken. And I, you know, I even think of things like just the process of eating fibrous foods and how that does clean your teeth at any age. And so I've taken to now even asparagus, I don't cut as much of the stem off. So it's a little more fibrous when I eat it so that it does more chewing work. And it may be, I may be a little overkill or crazy on this, but some of that stuff, I think there's some value to that. I don't know. I, I, I wonder as, as we evolve and I, I listen to different folks talking about, what it, what the most logical diet over the past millennia should be for all of us, because I think in one of your TED talks, you said, um, you know, the the paleo paleo eaters believe in X, and this group believes in Y. Well, again, we had this ability to eat a really diverse diet throughout the globe. So the only thing I would glean from what you're stating that I think is clearly, unrefutable is that the more refined and the more highly processed the diet, the more trouble we're in. Would that make sense? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's one place where I take a perhaps slightly different view than some other paleoanthropologists. And that is that I think there's no magic bullet diet that we should be eating. Yeah. Um, From my perspective, I wouldn't say meat made us human at all. I would say that a the ability to consume a broader spectrum of foods made us human because I am sure that there are some human ancestors that ate virtually no meat. Uh it's 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 really that resilience, that flexibility, I think, that made us human. Is meat part of the equation? Of course it is. Right. But that said, um it's not it's not a necessary part and I'm not sure that we can necessarily look to specific diets of specific hunter gatherer groups today or to the best of our ability, specific diets of early hominins, our ancestors and near cousins uh, and and say what we should be eating today. What we can do is use those to reflect on what we are eating that wasn't available in the past. Things like pizza and hamburgers and milkshakes. And I love all of them. and and recognize that that we need to sort of be careful with the 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 diversity of foods that we eat, right? Don't just eat hamburgers and pizza because those are basically the same thing. Um, you know, some fat and some some highly processed uh, flour and perhaps some tomato sauce. Um, that's not enough, and that's going to cause problems in and of itself.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think that that seems to be the theme across disciplines. It, you know, when I interview folks about intestinal microbiomes, when I interview folks around, you know, all of the different topics of metabolism, it seems to come back to fundamentally that statement right there where we need a diverse diet. And I think diversity speaks to the ability to have different micronutrients and macronutrients, which then feed the system appropriately. And and the diversity we know in ecosystems is always associated with better health outcomes. So I think to your point, I think having that varied and wide, wide type diet is going to allow for more species development in the oral microbiome of bacteria, but also, the micronutrient side of the game. And I think that's that's a clear point. And I would tend to say, I would agree with you entirely. Now, as I've spent the better part of the last 12 years researching this space, I think that is probably the clearest indication from me. The anthropologic side of this keeps coming up with the same answer. And I think you're entirely right. I don't think there's one diet for humans that makes any sense other than the standard American diet and high volume is bad. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, isn't it nice how people from such different disciplines and backgrounds who are approaching similar problems with such different data sets can converge on on the same answer? I think, honestly, it comes down to what I call the biospheric buffet. I think I put that in the Scientific American paper as well, right? This is basically the idea that The part of our planet that harbors life, the biosphere, can be seen as a giant buffet table, right? Think about going out to your Chinese buffet. You've got your plate in your hand, and you sort of belly up to that sneeze guard, uh, and you pick and choose from whatever's available at a given moment in a given time. There are certain foods you're going to prefer. Usually, it's the ones that give you the most energy, because you're not thinking about what's going to happen 30, 40 years down the road when your arteries start to develop all kinds of plaque. You're thinking about having the energy to get to tomorrow. Um, right. But in any event, you you find the your preferred foods, but in the case of nature, because of things like climate change, um, because of things like uh, plate tectonics that change the relationships, the the weather patterns and 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 the topography and that feeds back into the kinds of plants that are available and the kinds of animals that eat those plants, because of all of this, it's constantly changing. This buffet table, this biospheric buffet, nature's constantly putting out different items on this table. And so over time, our ancestors selected different foods from this buffet given changes in availability. And it's as this buffet table started to change over more and more rapidly, We evolved for the ability to take a broader spectrum of foods. And so all of a sudden, we are no longer limited to one little environment, one place. Say, I don't know, Central or Eastern Africa, Uh, we're no longer limited to that because we are so good at taking such a variety of foods, we can move out and expand and basically take over the world. And so I I think that's really the key here. And it all comes down to this broad spectrum of foods we can take. This is allowed for by our teeth, by our flexible guts in the microbiome within those guts, by the tools that we can use, things like fire, things like stone tools, to process and prepare those foods so we can glean the nutrients from them that they've got.
0: Yeah. What are the challenges coming uh, as you see it now with, with the changes in our global climate? Are we going to find ourselves, in a may Maybe a question that's a bit hard to answer unanswerable. are we going to find ourselves in sort of a difficult situation as far as climate's going right now based on your opinion?
1: Hmm. Well that actually gets into my other role. I'm I'm the director of my university's environmental dynamics program, uh, which is all about uh, climate change. Right. And um, obviously I mean the earth is 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 doing great. Climate is constantly changing and it has been ever since the ever since the plates formed and and the earth began to cool. And it's going to continue to change forever and ever and ever. It's going to get warmer, it's going to get cooler. And that's because of the changes in the in the in the the way the the Earth orbits around the sun and and its axis tilt and and the movement of these tectonic plates. And yeah, it's going to get cooler, it's going to get warmer. Uh, and there have been times even fairly recently, 30 million years ago, um, when we were in a hothouse situation, which was up to 16 degrees Celsius warmer globally than it is today. So we're not anywhere near um, the most extreme conditions that our earth has ever been in, in terms of heat. Uh, But that said, we sort of have developed all this infrastructure and positioned ourselves on the planet for the current conditions. And when we change those conditions, it's going to become awful inconvenient. Yeah. We're going to have to move around. We're going to have to change our infrastructure, particularly infrastructure that's on the, the two coasts <laughs> of, of the U.S. and and, and elsewhere. Low, low elevation infrastructure is going to have to go because, you know, as the as the caps melt, water levels are going to rise. And they already are. Uh, extreme weather seems to be increasing in its intensity um, and and the patterns of precipitation are changing and all of these things are gonna have their impacts. There are negatives, right? Um, perhaps Nebraska and Kansas uh, are not gonna be the best places to grow corn, but they're gonna be positives too. Maybe those will move north to Manitoba. Uh, let the interior of Alaska will become much more amenable to, life, to, to, to human existence. Uh, As the permafrost thaws, of course, thawing permafrost has its own issues, um, releasing uh, things like anthrax and other diseases and so forth that have been sort of sequestered under the ground for a very long time. But um, nevertheless, the earth will be fine. We're just going to have to adjust. Right. The problem there, and of course, this is getting way outside my own particular field of expertise, is that some people don't want to move. And people who live in places that are gonna be really good to live in in the future may not want other people coming in to bother them. Uh, and that has all kinds of geopolitical ramifications. As far as food goes, I think we're so good at producing it. You know, I mean, most of what we eat is grass, grass seeds, whether it's wheat, or barley, or rye, or corn, it's all grass seeds. And grass grows everywhere, grass is ubiquitous. Uh, and we're gonna be able to continue to produce all these calories that we need to feed our large population. Um, but the, the placement of these foods is going to change. Um, our need to be able to be resilient to extreme cl- extreme weather is going to, to, to change. Um, where we grow our food is going to change. Where populations are concentrated is going to change. Um, doesn't mean we can't deal with it. We can and we will. We don't have a choice.
0: Right. And I think Rick Johnson, who I love, he wrote the book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, looked at the uricase mutation that allowed humans, um, well, specifically it was primates in the beginning, but then humans to maximize the storage of fructose, the sugar, which allowed during mm-hmm. feast and famine or bust and boom cycles for humans to store fat in the liver, store fat peripherally. And it also increased blood pressure and a lot of advantageous events that now are counterproductive because our intake of that that stru- that fructose molecule is driving metabolic syndrome whole thing so i think to your point there's a reason behind why i'm saying this is that if we can make the food we'll always have the ability to function as a meaningful species on the planet and if it's mostly grasses which when they're broken down eventually lead to You know, they can make fructose from it. We will be able to have enough caloric storage to survive even famine events and things of that nature. So, I like you share the belief that we are a very resilient species. And no matter what happens with climate, no matter what happens on this planet, moving around will be probably the only thing that we'll have to deal with. But on that, I think we'll be able to survive all of it. It may be uncomfortable, it may be inconvenient. I tend to think that's very true. Uh, But you know what? Humans, have lived in inconvenience and uncomfortability for most of our existence up until the last what 200 years maybe maybe
1: yeah absolutely i mean eventually yeah i mean thinking long term nothing lasts forever (laughs) uh but at least and i mean the sun's eventually gonna envelop the earth but but um at least for the foreseeable future in our lifetimes in our children's lifetimes in our great 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 grandchildren's lifetimes we we'll be able to make it work.
0: Yeah. There's nothing like an anthropologist's view of the world where you see things in scales of millions of years to take our little blip in time and be able to condense it to say, yeah, you know what, we're fine in our little bit. I always love the way you guys see the world. It's always to me is one of one of my my most favorite guest type as the anthropologist because your view of the world is always so unique and I think one of the best. So any last minute thoughts on this topic, um anything else that you want to share with the audience regarding the this discussion that you think the takeaway points that are of value for them. I think you've given some massive pearls out there.
1: Well I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and and your audience, Chris. And um again, I think that Sort of the whole idea of the paleo diet, as far as being a specific kind of food that we need to eat, is pretty much a myth. There's no specific food. And as you yourself mentioned, people are coming to the realization that a broad based diet is probably a really good thing. Uh, Our teeth play a role in it. Um, And if we think from an evolutionary perspective and think about the environments in which our teeth evolved, that will ultimately help us to better manage things like dental disease, as we talked about at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, and ultimately, with, with new approaches to dentistry, we can resolve these terrible issues we're having with orthodontics and tooth crowding, uh, as well as caries uh, in, a, in, a, in a much more natural and meaningful way than, say, yanking out teeth and putting wires around them to straightening to, to straighten the jaw out. Um, so. Evolutionary dentists are now doing things like putting spacers in the jaw uh, during development. Pediatric dentists are doing this to lengthen the jaw, which is a much smarter approach because you're going to avoid breathing issues later in life. Um, And so if you inform your clinical practice. Based on sort of our understandings of evolutionary biology, that's not going to hurt.
0: It'll only help. Love it. I think that's an excellent statement of fact, because I have a good friend I'm going to actually interview on that exact topic of of the expanders and things to try and get ahead of that problem when they're younger, instead of having to try and deal with it when they're older. So I do appreciate that that statement. Uh, two last questions. If you were given a golden ticket, and I ask this of every guest, that golden ticket would allow you to walk up to Congress or the President of the United States and have one major effect changed. While you think of it, I'll tell you mine. I believe entirely that school food is a problem. And I would change school lunch programs so that they bring chefs back in, cook real food. It's whole, it's minimally processed, and it's nourishing. What we give our kids now is basically calorically dense, nutrient-poor food. What would you do with your golden ticket?
1: I don't think I'd do anything (laughs) Uh tooth-related. But I, I think what I would do is I would focus on providing the funding necessary for us to develop programs to be more resilient to climate change. Um, It may be too late to stop it, to mitigate climate change, but I think we need to focus our attention on dealing with what's going to come and developing the infrastructure and um, developing sort of the geopolitical sensibilities to 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 figure out how to handle it because it's not going to be pretty in the future
0: yeah and i i think that's a very admirable cause to to use your golden ticket on because the worst thing in the world to come is if we are geopolitically unstable based on this then wars and bad things happen and, and that's just that's a tragic nightmare for all finally uh where can people follow you? I I know I will share the link to your TED talks. I'm going to share the link to your University of Arkansas website. Is there any, do you have a Facebook page, Instagram? Do you do any of that for people to follow you? Is there any specific way to follow Dr. Peter Unger?
1: Sure. I've got a a Facebook page. I've got Instagram and I've got Twitter.
0: Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Share with me those and I will put them in the show notes and uh, and I'll actually audio them at the end of this podcast as well so people can get access to it. Because again, I, I love your work. Ever since I read that paper back in 2020, I've been wanting to have this conversation. So it's actually a joy for me to spend the time with you today to share your wisdom and knowledge because it's uh, it's a stuff people need to hear. To me, this is where medicine should be going, is talking more to anthropologists and folks who understand the why we are here not so much the, what drug do we need or what this do we need to treat to your point braces? Is that the ideal? Or is that just what we are accepting as the answer now? Because that's what societally we do or yanking the wisdom teeth, instead of going and doing palatal expanders or tooth expanders when they're younger. So to that point, I appreciate every ounce of your time. And and furthermore, every ounce of the research you've done because you've done a ton of work. I mean, so kudos to you and thank you for sharing.
1: Well, thank you, Chris, for the kind invitation to come speak with you today, and um, thanks for your balanced view. Uh, I can tell you that I've, I've done a bunch of podcasts, and, and not everybody that I speak with has a balanced view, so I really appreciate, appreciate that.
0: You, you as well. Thank you, and have a great day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. I wonder at times if I can ever get enough of these conversations. I find these physicians, these researchers, these speakers to be so fascinating. And Dr. Unger, as with many of the other guests, had such an amazing way of seeing the world, such a just refreshing view that isn't contrived, polarized, anything. It is just, what does it look like? What's the science? What do we need to know? And what can we take away from here? And I found this conversation to be spectacular. So there's not much to say at this point because it was all said in the podcast, but to me, it comes back to the fundamental knowledge that there is something missing in our modern society. And that big piece that we're missing is the ancestral reality that we should be consuming harder foods in their original whole foods source to help our jaws grow appropriately as children. And many of the statements as made during the podcast, our modern society, our lifestyle decisions, our choices are going completely against the fundamental reality of what our ancestral genes, our biological anthropologic history has asked us to do. So for me, this is the point where we should start to take a look back in time again to say, what was it meant to be, to do, to to experience in our lives as the view from our tooth would like to see. So kids should be chewing harder foods, right? As stated clearly, we don't want to induce choking, but we want to get kids back to a normal oral motor function. We want to get back to normal jaw structure. We want to get back to wisdom teeth being able to fit in the body, right? This is the key. And with, with that information, we can make better decisions. And having the expert like Dr. Peter Unger give us the story We now have ability to make decisions, to make choices, to make ourselves aligned with our genes, and ultimately, that's what I care about the most—to be in alignment for the best health outcomes for all of us. So, to follow Dr. Unger, there's multiple places you can go. You can go to the Unger Lab, U N G A R L A B dot. U-A-R-K dot E-D-U, University of Arkansas.edu, So U-N-G-A-R-L-A-B dot U-A-R-K dot You can also follow him on Twitter or now X. And that is at Peter S. Unger. So P-E-T-E-R-S-U-N-G-A-R. And he's as well on LinkedIn and Facebook. So for me, again, I think that's the key Follow the people that are making the best decisions regarding our health and our future, looking into the past with deference to what has happened historically over time, and combining that with new data and the new realities of the environment we live in today. So ultimately, these are the keys to a successful human existence on the planet, no matter what time of life we find ourselves in. And as he stated clearly, who knows what's going to happen in the future, but we certainly need to start looking at how we're going to adapt to climate change and all of the above. And for me, it always starts in simple places. Eat well, take care of your immune system, sleep well, be good to others, move, exercise, all of the above. So let's end there. What a great conversation. Really appreciate his time. Really appreciate your time. And as always, if you did like this podcast, go to Apple Podcast and rate it, review it. it. Gives me an idea of, do you like what I'm doing? Am I on the right track? Again, this is just a hobby. It's fun. I love it. And the guests are amazing. So I appreciate it all. Have a wonderful day and always hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for educational informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or the healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute development of a provider or patient relationship.